Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Titans of Healthcare podcast brought to you by Slice of Healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. And we have a pretty cool group today. This is the official announcement that Oleg, Kyle, and Missy and I are starting a rock band. Um, so we'll uh, we'll see if anyone tunes into that and listens. Um, no, just kidding. Um, really excited to have this group of people together. Uh, just real quick, we'll start going down the list, starting with Oleg, name, title, company, and we'll we'll dive into the cool content we have around behavioral health here today. Hey, Jared. Thanks for having us on this beautiful Friday afternoon. I am Oleg Tarkovsky, Director of Behavioral Health Services at Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield. Hey everyone, we've got Kyle Talcott, CEO and founder of Uplift. Yeah, and I'm rounding it out. I'm here. I'm Missy Krasner. Uh, I'm a venture chair at Redesign Health, and I'm on the board of Uplift and uh, have been a, uh, an avid digital health investor and operator for a long time. I'm really excited to have this group together, uh, and we have some great questions that we want to go through today. We're going to kick things off by really talking about the uh, behavioral health provider uh, shortages. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll give everyone a chance to kind of to, to take a question um, and, and kind of discuss it how they want to, and then everyone can add on to it. But um, for this one, Oleg, we'll, we'll start off with you, right? Um, is the perceived shortage of behavioral health providers in the U.S. Is, is this a reality or is this a, a misconception um, considering there's some data that kind of shows something different? So I get this question a lot, as you can imagine, um, and the devil's in the details. Um, literally, you, you have to break that question down empirically and uh, define each of the terms. In, in broader sense, uh, as a health plan, the largest plan here in the mid-Atlantic region, um, we look at that question in at least three buckets, but probably many more. Uh, the first one being um, the definition of provider. Behavioral health is not a monolith, and so you have to really more specifically define what kind of provider do you mean, and then even further define the place of service. Is this an outpatient provider? intensive provider, residential provider, and so on and so on. And then within those categories, is it a psychiatrist? Is it a social worker? Is it a psychologist? And even there, you can break it down further. Is it a child psychiatrist? Is it an adult psychiatrist? And so on and so on. So that's one bucket in which you can try to attempt to answer that question. The second bucket is where are we talking about face-to-face -face services, digital services, behavioral health tech support services? Um, are we talking about a service that can only be delivered face-to-face -face versus a myriad of services that can be delivered virtually? And even there, once you look at the, for example, the face-to-face -face option, what is the travel distance for an individual? So you may not have a child psychiatrist within a 15-minute drive from where you live, but if you go just a little bit further and drive 40 minutes, there will be a specialist that you're looking for. So a, a very good question, yet there's not a, a fairly simple answer. And, and I don't want to speak for other health plans, but for us, uh, we found a way, even with the increased demand for behavioral health services, to meet the this demand with a supply of providers almost in every one of those areas that I just described. Yeah. Uh, and if I could just add in there, um, you know, I think it's, it's a really unique specialty within healthcare, right? I've sort of worked across the health plan side and built networks across a lot of the different specialties and within behavioral health. Uh, I think what's often misstated is, you know, uh, Oftentimes numbers, especially numbers of providers are often limited to psychiatrists and or psychologists, which are uh, honestly the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the overall um, provider base that's out there, right? And so what you actually have is you've got six to 700,000 behavioral health practitioners, licensed practitioners across the US, a lot of which are you know, LCSWs, LMFTs, right? So um, licensed counselors or therapists. And uh, I think what's really unique in that, you know, that's two to three times as large as the primary care side of, of the healthcare system. 
And inherent in that is, you know, just sort of the fragmentation problem that a one provider base that large represents, but also sort of the lack of historical investment that you've seen in other specialties where primary care groups are now quite sizable for the most part, very few operate independently. You have sort of the very opposite issue within behavioral health. And what you have is you've got a lot of individual practitioners who don't have a front office staff, aren't there to answer the phone when you call them, uh, let alone sort of work through sort of the administrative burden of you know, working with insurance or really just running a practice in general, right? And that creates a lot of navigation problems for patients looking for care. Yeah, it, it's, I'll just jump in. It's, you know, when we think about labor shortages and demand and supply across the entire medical complex, like you're definitely seeing a massive uh, labor problem in primary care, nursing, and it's only gonna get worse with physician burnout and everything that's, that's happening in a post-pandemic world. I think for, for behavioral health, the issue is not so much demand and supply imbalance. Some would argue that, that psychiatry is still an issue. It's really about access and affordability. And, and when I, what I mean about access, it's, it's about trying to find someone navigating to someone who's open panels, who's at the right price point and has the right therapeutic expertise to be able to help you as you're sort of trying to find whether it's someone in your family that needs help or it's an addiction related issue, you're being bullied at school, like whatever, whatever it is that you need, or it's actually pharmaceutical. And I think that's really what we saw in, you know, at the height of COVID, right? Like there was just an, a tremendous amount of stress put on the delivery system. And we all had to go from in-person to virtual and it became a navigation issue. And I think that's what, where you would figure out, well, who, who was covered, who could I go see, uh, it, it just, it was heightened, right? It was like, even when, if you found people that were in your insurance network, they were generally closed panels, right? Um, or they didn't, they didn't service you with the right kind of therapeutic model that you wanted to be in. Missy, staying on, on you for a second, you know, when we talk about the, the future of behavioral health post-pandemic, it's, it's been... It, I mean, we, we still hear obviously about COVID and it, it's, it's, it hasn't gone away, but it's still different than when we were during that, you know, pandemic uh, phase. When you look at the significant investment in behavioral health that happened during the pandemic to, to improve the process, uh, to improve the access to care, um, what are the expectations for this next phase though, specifically as we shift towards, you know, paying for quality in behavioral health? Yeah. So let me just lay the landscape and I would welcome, you know, Kyle or Oleg to, to jump in. So you know, here we are, we're going into COVID, right? We're coming out of 20, you know, 20, 2019, uh, digital health is on a rise. We get to COVID and in the midst of COVID, behavioral health literally was one of the top performing clinical conditions in venture. Like in 2021, I think there was close to 5 billion that went into it. And from 2019 to 2023, it was the top, like, funded segment in the industry. You have these monster deals, right? All the employer solutions, everybody, every, I was at Amazon at the time and even Amazon was like, had five RFPs from different employer-based solutions around trying to just increase access for their employees. So you had the employer market being flooded, right? You had the sort of uh, the, the D to C market where you had some people that were experimenting with on-demand therapy and paying out of pocket and doing a lot of really interesting texting on demand with therapists. You had group therapy emerge, you had peer therapy emerge. And then you had sort of what I would call omni-channel like psychiatry, where you had like the brick and the mortar and the, some of the larger sort of uh, like, like outfits, like uh, life stance that were, you know, going public. And I think now what we're seeing is a shift, right? We're seeing a shift into a lot more market consolidation. I think the employer market is saturated and somewhat exhausted. And I think we're, we're, we're also seeing some more narrow solutions for things like OCD, things like eating disorders, substance abuse, um, a lot of SMI. So the, the, the market is sort of changing a little bit because everybody ran at the access problem. And now everybody's looking at how do we actually focus on measurement-based care? How do we focus on outcomes? Um, I mean, Aleg, I... I know that's a, a big part of, uh, of, of your area and, you know, it's certainly Kyle's been working on it at Uplift. So I welcome you to jump in on sort of how you saw the industry just blow up and all the capital go in 
lots of these different solutions and where we are now. Uh, another topic that you could probably break it down into those three categories, right? Access, quality, and, and affordability and spend hours and on each one. Um, so in short, uh, I'll pick up sort of what the thrust of Jared's question was, which is how do you match uh, demand with quality? And really the only main indicator in answering that question should and, and usually is time because you often don't know in the moment uh, much about quality until you're able to measure it way down the road. Um, and just in the last few weeks, there were several uh, published uh, articles, assessments of sort of digital behavioral health technology and its effects uh, on the overall making a dent in improving folks' mental health. And the news is not great, right? We've spent the $6 billion, and in some cases, the outcomes are actually worse. And so this is, in my mind, this we are at the infancy of this whole system, trying to figure out what needs to happen now, what should happen next, and how all of it will shake out, let's say, two, three years from now. Because to me, as a clinician myself, one of the most fundamental uh, questions around quality is the, the measurement piece. And you often hear the words measurement-based care, and even that concept is starting to sort of walk itself back a little bit. And the new term is uh, uh, measurement-informed care. And my guess is within the next year or two, even that goes away. Because in, in essence, you need the right tools and you need everyone to have a consensus or agreement on what those tools are and what it is that we're measuring. And once we're on the same page about that, then the logical next step is to figure out, is this actually showing improvement in quality? Until we get there, a lot of it now is um, sort of piecemealing some of these solutions. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because a lot of that money, and this is one of the reasons we started Uplift, we're really just thrown at the access problem and almost blindly, right? So, hey, let's bring as many providers as possible. Let's match them up to patients and the rest will happen. Well, healthcare doesn't exactly work that way, right? Primary care has been under evolution for, for decades now, right? And under value-based care, and that's still quite evolving. Behavioral health was left out of EMR incentive adoption, right? From federal funding. I mean, we are so far behind just getting to enough data to understand what is important, what's not important, what's the trajectory of behavioral health treatment and success. We're still very much in the early innings and that's all required foundationally to understand what we should be measuring, what we should not be measuring and what doesn't make sense. And then how does that impact long-term outcomes, both from a cost perspective and success on the patient side. And so I think, you know, for, for us in particular, that is core to the model, right? It's how do we deliver care within a platform? We can start to build that data set, measure progression, and also feed that back to the provider to better equip them, empower them to, you know, and, and I think Oleg, it's a good way to put it, right? Make better informed care, let them do what they do, but help them do it better. And through that, we can better understand what works, what doesn't work. And that sets us up for driving towards payment innovation, which will bring the rest of the industry along, right? Yeah, I'll just, the clip on that is that when we were, so I was, I was in government during the sort of beginning of the High Tech Act and like the whole sort of national push for doctors to adopt electronic health records. I mean, I think when, when I went in, we were like close to, you know, like 22 to 33% of doctors used an electronic uh, modality to, to document, chart, and bill, right? And now we're actually like closer to 98% many years later. The government actually threw out a lot of incentives. We are really like in the early inning. Uh, I mean, if you look at a lot of the solo practitioners out there, sure, there's a couple specialty EHRs in behavioral health. But if you look at the sort of onesies and twosies or folks that are out there that are practicing you know, they've got their own practice, so they're just starting. 
there's a, still a lot of people that are charting on paper, if charting at all. And it, to actually do MBC or, you know, measurement, I love measurement informed care. I think that's brilliant. It, it, you can't really do that at scale, right? Because this is, this is essentially surveying and trying to get patient reported outcomes. And so, you know, I, I do think the, 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 the future of tech enabled services in behavioral health or even digital health will help move the needle. But Oleg, you're right, it's a time-based approach. Um, and in order to reinforce evidence-based practices clinically, you need to have that kind of feedback loop. So on the surface that, that what Missy just brought up, again, all sounds like uh, meaningful and actionable, uh, I guess, place to start. The dilemma we have, and anyone that has actually looked empirically at the data sets, um, and again, this is not my own work. You can Google this stuff and quickly get to the same result. Uh, our colleagues on the MedSearch side, right? They're roughly 20 or so years ahead when it comes to data and EHR collection. Um, an average medical record today is roughly the length of Shakespeare's Hamlet. And roughly 90% of the data in there is completely useless. And so when you start off, with the foundational, you know, that saying garbage in, garbage out. If that is what we're talking about when it comes to data, I don't want to do that. I do not want to replicate what they did on that side because um, what they're finding today, especially with AI's presence, omnipresence in our day-to-day -day lives, healthcare is starting to dabble in using AI for various purposes. Well, one of the first things people are trying to figure out is, is there a use case to help us make better sense of the data? And the short answer is no, because you're just giving this very powerful machinery a lot of garbage and it's spitting out even more garbage using its own algorithms to figure out, to, to attempt to figure out, uh, is there a way to make sense out of it? And so I worry that if we use the similar approach, um, we're going to have similar problems in the end. And so this is really an opportunity to build a, a system, a behavioral health data system that is clean, that is not bloated with all the kinds of things that are currently in large uh, med surge EHRs, and instead focus on, and I, I like what Kyle said, focus on what matters. But to do that, you first have to figure out what matters. Um, and Jared, if I can get one more minute to kind of explain what I mean. Um, for a very long time in this field and really in modern Western world, we have looked at behavioral health as a monolith, including the term itself. The term itself kind of was born maybe 20 or so years ago. It was an easy way to people to sort of swallow any conversation around brain issues. And almost without a discussion, people agree, well, let's call it behavioral health. Well, with, if, if you start with that supposition, there's still two other terms that people often use to describe things in this field and almost always interchangeably. And that is mental health and mental illness or mental disorders. They're not the same things. And, and this is something that I think because we've used it interchangeably and have needed an injection of psychoeducation into the communities, into our culture, and I think we're finally getting there, although the actual terms themselves were fairly well defined by Corey Keyes uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, he's a sociologist out of Emory University, and he has written many papers on this, has studied this for many years, and has made some conclusive analysis, which is mental health is a state of well-being. Everyone, 100% of people on earth have mental health to some degree or another. It's typically referring to our abilities to cope. Uh, deal with normal stresses of life, and then ultimately persevere and be productive and fruitful in our ability to do what we need to do in our various roles, students, parents, you name it. Mental illness or mental disorders are health conditions. They're defined in the DSM. You have to meet certain criteria to be diagnosed with those conditions. And according to CDC, roughly 20% of the general population has a mental illness. You have to see a, a clinician to be diagnosed with it. And so that's the paradigm in which we exist today when it comes to behavioral health. Unfortunately, every one of those aspects, right, that we already mentioned, access, quality, affordability, and I'll add a fourth one, equity, 
all are dependent on that lens through which you view the question. Are you talking about mental health or are you talking about mental illness or are you talking about both? Because to some degree or another, anyone that woke up this morning may have struggled with something as it relates to mental health. It does not mean that they need to see a therapist ASAP. At the same time, there are plenty of people that have a diagnosable mental disorder today that not because we don't have a therapist or a psychiatrist for all sorts of other reasons have not reached out or gotten the treatment that they need. So I, I, I want us to kind of start thinking about globally like that. Thank, thank you, Oleg, and thank you uh, all for, for your comments on that. I, I want to kick it over to, to you, Kyle, a little bit to talk about some of the motivation. You know, you, you mentioned you, you're running this company, Uplift. Talk us through some of the motivation. I'm sure a lot of what's being discussed here played into it. Um, but what inspired you to start Uplift and enter this behavioral health field during such a, a challenging period? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a question I get a lot. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, throughout my entire career, I've worked uh, in a lot of the different sort of areas of healthcare, right? So I worked sort of within the self-insured um, at Rally Health, and then I went and did in-home in care, uh, working with Medicare Advantage and commercial and exchange lives, but really focused on sort of those dual eligibles and um, you know, to, to Oleg's, you know, sort of point, um, you know, those folks that were really not getting great care um, on, on their own. And so proactively engaging them and getting them into the level of care that they need um, at Clover, right, uh, as well as CityBlock. And throughout that, behavioral health was one of the largest challenges to achieving not only organizational goals, but the patient outcome goals. And you know, I think at CityBlock in particular, I saw firsthand the power of investing in behavioral health upfront on total cost of care and patient outcomes and overall health and wellness. And a lot of what we did there was investing in social and behavioral before we even got to the medical. And to me, that the healthcare system sort of is reversed and is on its head, right? It's a very much medical first, and maybe we'll get to behavioral, maybe we'll get to social. And I saw, you know, sort of that uh, sort of reverse aspect. And when I looked at a lot of the companies, a lot of the money that came in, a lot of the companies that got funded as a result of COVID, honestly, it was on access. It was on access to the part of the population, mostly commercial space, right, from an insurance perspective. And also the condition set that they were dealing with was really on sort of the less complex, lower acuity, and therefore, you know, putting on my payer hat, the less costly, right? And that's a little bit of what Oleg is getting at, you know, access in a part of the population that doesn't really need it actually increases costs on the system, which is, you know, is bared by, you know, the risk bearing provider group or the payer in most cases. And so what we really set out to build at Uplift is one more of an insurance agnostic model, right? And so we're one of the few, if not the only that accepts Medicare, Medicaid, as well as commercial, right? We are clinically condition agnostic. We have therapists and we're working downstream as well now around self-guided resources, all the way up to a team-based model where a psychiatric provider and a therapist are working together. And we see significantly better outcomes in that team-based model versus a therapist or just a psychiatrist alone, right? And so a big part of what we're doing is getting the person to the right level of care, right? Using data to inform that and getting better over time and then measuring outcomes to understand what's working, what's not working. And, you know, I think as we evolve within a, you know, sort of the behavioral health sector, really migrating just from access also to access and quality is the next big evolution point. And we've sort of built more towards that future as we sort of wait for the industry to sort of find its footing. And hopefully we can push it more that way faster Right. But we also, you know, are solving the core problem as we sought out, you know, on the access side as well, making sure that we're affordable through the insurance networks. Just to pick up on that, like, Oleg, I loved, I loved how you sort of really clearly define the difference between mental health or state of being and mental illness. Um, I think often what we've seen in, uh, in, in sort of the, the delivery system side is that Anything you throw into the behavioral health bucket with that tag, whether you use behavioral health or mental health, right, 
it, it essentially is the, it has historically been the orphan stepchild, right? It's like, uh, it's, it has not been fully integrated into the delivery system complex. Um, now, if you have a firm diagnosis and you've, you've seen someone and you know that you've got a um, mental illness, then you can somewhat be seen in the, what I would call full, you know, Occidental Western world. Uh, uh, and and you, you, you're seeing an MD. I think what it was interesting about Uplift and Kyle's approach is that he is trying to actually establish um, a team-based approach or meeting the patient for where they're at. So if you are on the low acuity side and you, 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 you're sort of through whatever your sort of treatment is, discover that you actually have a diagnosis, need medication, like you've got that whole axis of care. And I think part of what we've seen is, is there just hasn't been that kind of integration. Um, I mean, I can tell you, I'm someone who's a high consumer uh, of ther ther therapy. And I would say that oftentimes my therapist probably has a better L, a better clip on what my overall uh, health state is because she's tracking my mental health, right? But has a much better window into my actual physical health than my primary care physician, who, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, I will see two times a year and it will take me at least three months to get in, right? And, you know, I get a 15 to maybe 20 minute visit and it's, it's like, you know, perhaps maybe it's prevention or it's vitals or what have you. It's like, you know, what do you need? So I just think it's really interesting that uh, the behavioral health window could essentially be a much better quarterback for larger, you know, comorbidity or health issues. And we just have not figured out how to do that as a system. And, you know, I think that's what's interesting about at least solving the access side, but right, we still have a lot of work to do with the integration side. I often say um, behavioral health is a team sport, but people often misunderstand what that means. Uh, so Missy just outlined one half of the team. Uh, human beings are biopsychosocial creatures. And so often when we're trying to address any of those elements, biology, psychology, or social aspects, treatment or care itself is just what at least half, but usually even less as part of the equation. You have to have other pieces and they often come from family, community, society, all sorts of ways in which we integrate ourselves. You often hear this term integrated behavioral health care. And again, it ends with the word care, which means some kind of doctor, social worker, nurse, and so on. What it usually does not mean is mom, brother, friend, teacher, boss, and so on. And we know from our recent research on social determinants of health and sort of basic human behavior, those things are often make up more as a percentage of total uh, outcome factors than even the care itself. The pills, the therapy, all that is great, especially if you need it, but the other stuff needs to be there too. And so I think this is also another opportunity to use this platform that we've built in the last few years to incorporate those other pieces of the equation. And not to mention sort of probably the biggest challenge in this space and in any space, any chance I get to mention this, at first people kind of look puzzled, but then they, ah, I, I see what he's talking about. There's an old joke, old psychology joke, right? How many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is just one. It will take a really long time and the light bulb really has to want to screw in. It's that description of sort of, human nature when it comes to change. And it's not specific to behavioral health. We have the same challenges and diabetes and hypertension and you name it, any condition. And so I see a lot of people, especially in the BH startup space, doing what Kyle is doing. And some are more successful than others. Uplift is one of those. But not a lot of focus on that. How do you get people? I'll quote my favorite neuroscientist here, Robert Sapolsky. How do you get people to do the right thing when it's a hard thing to do? And our health is a hard thing to do from exercising to sleeping to eating well. Yes, pills assist. Yes, getting treatments and seeing providers helps. But the hardest part is that maintenance and sustainability piece. Even taking medications is hard. 
by the latest reports, half the people in the United States don't even take their medication that their doctors prescribe them. So that's a lot of waste, but also they're not getting any better if the doctor thinks they should be taking medication X and they're throwing half of it away. That's interesting. You know, not to be wasteful, but that did happen to me recently. I thought I had like an eye infection. Turns out I just, uh, I slept on my, my face for, <laughs> for too long, but, but you know, everything, when I did go through the, the tests, like the, uh, for the telehealth visit, it did align. Like I've had an eye infection before it, everything aligned, but once I knew it wasn't, I wasn't going to obviously use that. So, but now I have it. Um, for the, for the reminds me of actually, so I recently had a chance to speak with, um, Alan Francis. Alan Francis was the chair of the committee that wrote the DSM four. So he's sort of considered a God in this industry. And we had a oh, chance. You should, to, you should just that? explain to listeners what DSM is. Yeah. So DSM is the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders, which is this big book we call sometimes the Bible that has a list of all of the diagnoses that one could possibly get. And dating back decades ago, where it started with the DSM-1, where there was just a few dozen conditions, all the way to DSM-5, which is the latest edition with over 500 possible diagnoses. And so long story short, Alan wrote this book called uh, Saving Normal, and the, the central idea is that in the last many decades, we have in some ways redefined what normal is and a lot of mental illnesses could be viewed through that lens. And so today it's easier to get diagnosed with a particular condition than it was 30 years ago, right? And so he calls it the diagnostic inflation. And so the main reason he believes this is happening is because on the front end, we are too quick to diagnose people and then prescribe treatments, i.e. Jared's example with probably antibiotic drops for his eye infection. And so I said, so what can we do? What, what's the, what do you recommend? What is the best way to change the system for the better? And he said, give it time. Don't try to give a diagnosis and God forbid immediate treatment in that first meeting. Usually when patients come to see us as therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, they're at their worst. But that doesn't mean that they'll be this way tomorrow or a week from now. So you have to kind of give it some time before you do anything to truly accurately diagnose a particular condition and then go from there. Um, and again, lots of studies have been published around this, both on medical and behavioral health side. And roughly three quarters of most mild to moderate conditions from like flus and colds all the way to mild depressive and anxiety symptoms self-resolve within three to four weeks. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's it's a, it's a good parlay into sort of um, how how many behavioral health uh, digital health startups are being more responsible uh, about, uh, prescribing. I know, you know, Kyle could probably write a book on it. Uh, we've taken a, a, a very hard look. I mean, in, in the industry, when we were going through COVID and there was so much stress on the system, there were a lot of startups that were kind of creating a more DC model or trying to actually solve access. And they were actually trying to help people get access to prescriptions. I think there was a lot of debate over that. I don't know, Kyle, if you want to jump in here on how you sort of um, your point of view and how you've approached this and, you know, what warrants a prescription and, and you know, how, how people can get medication if they need it. Yeah. And, and again, access to the wrong kind of care can be just as problematic as lack of access to begin with. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we certainly, I mean, we'll have somebody come to us, you know, uh, interested in evaluation for medication and, you know, we'll sometimes lose that patient if we don't agree with their view that they need a medication, right? And that is the right thing to do from a clinical perspective. You know, it's, it's the right thing to do for society, right? Um, but, you know, depending on your business model, that may also be the wrong or the, the, you know, the wrong thing to do from a business perspective. And so and this is where, you know, I think transition on uh, even just within sort of the, the, the infrastructure, the payment model side, can help us continue to push towards that sort of end 
vision where people are getting the right level of care, right? So like you just described the right scenario, right? Where maybe it is do nothing. Well, right now, do nothing doesn't pay <laughs> for a visit, right? And so as we look at how do we best align incentives, right? We're still figuring out it on the medical side, but we're not even touching that on the behavioral health side, really. Um, and so when we think about how we change, right? A healthcare claim to an insurance company requires a diagnosis code, right? Using the DSM-5, it requires a procedure code, right? And it has specific, you know, documentation requirements, right? So in order to get paid to do the service, to make a living for these practitioners, they have to do these things. And so how do we transition, not just how we think about behavioral health in the context of the broader medical um, medical system, but also how do we transition how we reverse for it how, and, and going back to obviously what it works and how do we measure success so that we can bring it all together in a world where it gets us to the best clinical or maybe not clinical uh, approach and still obviously supporting all the, the great clinicians that are out there trying to deliver, you know, great outcomes for us. Last few questions. Great. Just the, this, the three of you, this is such a good group. Um, the back and forth, I love it. And um, I probably should feel bad a leg about that, having that medication, but you know, it lasts for a little while longer and now I'm kind of excited that I have it. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you, Oleg, because you probably hear, maybe sometimes it's frustrating from so many companies uh, you know, startups and solutions in the behavioral health space. Um, so, you know, how, how is success measured in care first, like programs and, and what challenges would you say still remain? Cause I, I know you have to evaluate a lot of these different options. Um, but yeah, would, would be really curious to hear your thoughts. So same ruler as I introduced earlier in this conversation, it, it's the quadruple aim, access, quality, affordability, and equity. And then each one of those has their own slightly nuanced, more nuanced definitions of what we mean by that. So access, for example, is can be differentiated depending on the level of care, right? If somebody is looking for emergent services, you want them to be able to get those services right now. As opposed to routine services, which they could wait a few days. And so for each one of the categories under the access umbrella, you want to make sure that you have agreed with the folks that work with you. What are some of those standards? And people often quote NCQA, various uh, state insurance boards requirements. To me, those things are the floor, not the ceiling. That, that's the bare minimum that you should be starting with. You really want to do the right thing by your member. And that means... In my opinion, what would I recommend a family member or a very close friend? And if I would send them to our own network, that's because I believe access is being addressed properly. So that's the first one. The second one is quality. And as we discussed, a little bit harder to define. Uh, it varies in a million different ways. But even there, there's a, a way to figure out who has higher quality than others. So for example, the mere nature of measuring something typically indicates higher quality as opposed to just shooting off the hip. And so if our practices can prove that they're measuring retention, they're measuring therapeutic alliance, God forbid they're measuring some uh, clinical measures, whatever the condition the person has, that's great. And we're not gonna pay them more or less today depending on what the results of those measures are, but rather the fact that they're doing it because this shows us that they're really invested in monitoring the progress of their patients. When it comes to equity, this one is actually pretty straightforward. As all of you on this call probably know, and if not should know, that there's disparate treatments, not just in behavioral health, but generally in healthcare, depending on what skin color you have, what gender you are, and so on and so on. And so we've done a lot of work trying to improve that system, at least from the sort of locus of control that we have. So uh, we've partnered recently with a, a large, similar to Uplift practice, where part of their SLAs 
are directly dependent on how many black therapists they have to meet that percentage-wise demand we have for the cultural and racial appropriateness for that population. Same goes for Hispanics, same goes for LGBTQ plus populations and so on and so on. And this could be shown, right? They, every quarter they report to us how many therapists they have that fit that definition. And then again, you can keep breaking that down by the type of interventions they provide, the type of conditions they treat and so on and so on. And then lastly, affordability. And this is as a health plan, this is one of very important aspects of my job and what we do, because ultimately, as we said earlier, if folks are getting treatment and we're paying for it, that maybe they don't need in the first place, that's a lot of resources that are now being sucked out of the system and are not going towards people that really need the care. And so part of my job is to constantly balance that equation, right? How much are we dedicating, allocating in resources towards this general problem we all call behavioral health versus to our psychotic disorders population, autism spectrum population, to eating disorders, and so on and so on. These are really sick individuals that need a lot of care. And it's very expensive usually. And so it, it's nice to say right care at the right time at the right place, but for certain folks, what that means is we have very limited options. And that's sort of how we see it. Kyle, I just, one of the things that I think we've, you know, we, I've been really interested in as an investor is seeing how, um, how companies grow over time and what they're measuring. And I, I know you've invested a ton um, on the technology stack end to end, but, you know, we're, we're, I mean, we're seeing month over month some really interesting just stats around sort of time to first visit, you know, how many times you guys are doing um, your, 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 your surveys out to patients. I'm curious, how has that evolved um, over time? Because, you know, like Oleg, to your point, those, those four access points, right? The, the, the aim, as you would put it, um, to have a lot of these sort of partnerships that you have been collecting data and the cadence. I don't know, Kyle, maybe you can speak to that because I've definitely seen your numbers. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, obviously starting on the access side is where everyone's really focused, especially when we founded the company. You know, we're, we're our average time to care 1.3 days, right? And part of that is getting them to the right providers with the digital access, as well as them being able to pick up the phone and call us, right? To be able to find somebody. And, um, you know, we have patients that it range from 13 all the way up. We have some folks in the 90s, right? And so we scale across and really meeting the patient where they are, making it incredibly accessible for them, which means helping them find the right provider uh, that they may or may not need. Um, and you know that really just kicks off the journey and we're collecting sort of your baseline. And one of the, I think early, but also really critical elements of software that we built was you know, our own you know, quote unquote, form builder, right? Which is another word for, you know, the ability to build custom sort of data questionnaires and assessments and actually, you know, use not only scientifically validated, but also custom data points for our health plan partners and for others and to introduce new data sets as we learn what matters and what doesn't matter. We can now scale that across, you know, the tens of thousands of patients that we serve and the thousands and thousands of providers. And the system does that on the behalf of the provider. Um, and therefore, it's one less thing they have to do, which is always one of the issues with any quality programs or any of the sort of existing things that are out there. It just creates more of an admin burden for providers. And that creates another spin of burnout. Um, you know, the software that we built it does it for them. It presents the data that they need to see when they need to see it, right? And so it's doing it in the way that hopefully more empowers the provider to make actionable decisions. And when it's not actionable, it's there for them, but it's not presented to them in a way that they need to see it, right? And so it's fine tuning the data that we collect, the capabilities and the partners to be able to define those data sets and really wanna push the understanding of what's happening. And even just going back, you know, Oleg on sort of the diversity side of things, we very much, you know, the vast majority of our providers are community-based providers. And so very much reflect the population that they're serving. 
And that is an element as you're coming in as a patient to uplift, you're telling us a little bit about what you're looking for. You're able to see that profile filter by cultural competencies, you know, filter by uh, languages and other things so that you can find the right fit for you. Because that fit aspect is so critical. It's such a trusting and deep relationship. And that really is, you know, the, the starting point for will you stay in care so that we can then get to the root of the issue so that we can better empower you as an individual to be able to handle life today, which is increasingly complex, right? And hopefully not need care at some point. Everybody talks about, hey, we do PHQ-9, we do GAD-7, you know, what is it? You'll, I'm, yeah, I'm not a clinician, but it's like common factors. There's, there's all kinds of instruments that are the industry standard in kind of trying to collect uh, uh, patient feedback. I, I think the magic is the cadence by which you, you collect it, the success by which you, you know, you have people actually reporting on it and finishing it, and then how you're surfacing it to your clinicians, right? So that they can see how they're doing and then how you're actually giving it back to your payer partners um, and how they're ingesting it. And I, I do hope, I mean, we're, we're in the very early innings, but I do hope that we can see a lot more, uh, uh, payers that are essentially creating high quality performance networks. They're rewarding providers for doing the right thing. They are doing measurement-based care. They are submitting their data, right? They've got, they're charting in a way that, that shows their quality, right? Around their care plans. And I think we're still in the early innings of that. I, you know, Oleg, I know you guys are experimenting with that. There's certainly a lot of national payers that are exploring with that. I wouldn't say that we're anywhere near value-based care. Um, there are, there are at-risk populations that essentially, um, or you know, even Medicare Advantage plans that are investing in behavioral health as part of the overall at-risk pool. But uh, I, I think to see these sort of performance networks that are like high-quality, high-star networks, we're still very early days. Yeah, I agree, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, as a follow-up to what you just said, the uh, the. the definition of uh, PHQs and GADs as being industry accepted standard. Uh, they never were, they never will and shouldn't be. Uh, these are screening tools that were designed for primary care doctors to sell uh, Prozac and Xanax. Um, and if you just, again, peripherally Google the, the histories of those tools, you will quickly find your way over to Pfizer. Um, but doesn't mean that we shouldn't use any tools, right? we should use appropriate tools. And maybe a, a key takeaway from today's conversation, and I think Kyle and Missy and I would agree that, that this operant word here is appropriate when it comes to access, when it comes to quality, when it comes to affordability, and even equity. Appropriate is a key word, and we have to use it every chance we get, because otherwise it's wild, wild west. Last question for everyone. This is the, if this was um, the, the Jim Cramer, CNBC, this would be the lightning round where he freaks out and you know, starts yelling that this is the lightning round. I'm not going to do that, but this is the lightning round. Um, uh, everyone will have 30 seconds each. Um, in the context of behavioral health, are current efforts sufficient to help more people recover? Kyle, we'll start with you. We'll go Missy and then Oleg will end with you. So ding, ding. Uh... Not quite. Um, we're getting there, but I mean, CMS just announced for the first time ever a you know a, a, a behavioral health value program. I mean, we're 2024 here, uh, far removed from COVID at this point. Can't even use that like excuse. Um, you know, using LMFTs in Medicare just literally happened. Uh, these these are things where I mean, this, this should have been done decades ago. Uh, so we are moving in the right direction, but a lot more has to be done. And it starts with, I think, understanding what success looks like so that we can get there. Yeah, and I'll just say that I'm very encouraged by um, a lot of the investments that are going into breakthrough therapies. And I'm, I'm talking about psychedelics. I'm talking about um, neurological healing. Um, I, I think that's a really interesting space, but the, the regulatory environment is still too slow. Um, and, you know, I, I, just, I just think that if, you know, if the government could push forward there, We'd have a lot. We'd have a lot more interesting um, progress. Uh, th th literally, we've been looking at research since the 1960s on this area. Um, 
So it's now starting to actually come into the mainstream and we're starting to see biotech funding. Um, and that's really encouraging. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not that optimistic. Uh, we're definitely not there yet, but I'll, I'll take a slightly more, uh, let's not necessarily cynical, but uh, realistic approach to this, right? So as much as people say the, the rates of anxiety, depression are through the roof, if you really look at the prevalence rates, according to CDC, of let's say those two conditions, um, they haven't really changed since World War II. And so what we do or don't do doesn't seem to matter all that much. And so I, I, I'm, I often use this phrase, we'll never be able to treat our way out of this. And so I'll go back to what I said a little bit ago, which is we need to change structurally, right? Our education system, our work system, our government systems, our legal systems, all of that is what goes into being a biosocial psychological creature. And so that's what needs to change, not just what prescriptions we write or what kind of therapies we use. That's that, that to me, that's just a, a little, a snowball on top of a tip of the iceberg. We need to flip the iceberg itself and start deconstructing some of those entrenched, usually institutional and cultural things that lead to people getting sick. Um, ultimately, you know, it, it seems like at least looking at the data that's coming out more and more over the last four years, no matter what we throw at this problem, whether it's medicines, even including psychedelics and other uh, recently improved uh, treatment models, it doesn't seem to really budge the overall rate of people getting sick or not. And so I think we need more investment in that area. And unfortunately, because it's such a global, you know, sociocultural problem, everybody's pointing fingers at each other and there's very little uh, agreement on at least who needs to fund this stuff. Very well said. There are massive macro psychosocial issues at play here that are beyond just core delivery and therapeutics, for sure. Well, thank you everyone for, for joining uh, us on the podcast today. This was a fun conversation, um, very needed conversation, and look forward to, to staying in touch with all of you. Thank Thanks, you so much. Thank you, Jared.